The sustainability message is starting to emerge from the space sector and they're starting to understand that all this great technology that has been uh, created to solve problems of trying to keep humans alive in extreme environments can actually then be adapted to the workplace. Hi, I'm Duncan Pryor, digital transformation consultant and host of the Making Things Work podcast. I love looking for innovative and creative ways to make work better so that we can get the balance right in our lives and have seen how leadership and teams can accomplish that. In this podcast series, we meet a group of executive leaders to understand what leadership means to them and their approach to delivering transformation and change in the workplace so that teams achieve great things and people see their careers flourish. Today, we're talking to Neve Shaw, engineer, scientist, writer, and performer, recently voted one of Ireland's leading science communicators and STEAM specialists, which means merging science, technology, engineering, arts, and maths. She believes in dreaming big and is on a mission to get to space. Welcome, Neve. Hi, Duncan. How are you? Very well. Thanks yourself. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So now, more than ever, it seems that research that's done in space is directed to the sustainability of our planet and the well-being of everything, uh, including us that inhabits it, whereas in the past it might have been all about more to do with the actual exploration side of it. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. I think that... What we can learn from space is when we put humans in space, we put them in extreme danger. And so many great people, female and male scientists and engineers, work tirelessly to find the best solutions and the most efficient solutions to keeping humans alive in space. And because of that, they have developed technologies that are very efficient at what they do. So technologies like water purification systems, waste management systems, energy systems, air filtration systems, and even kind of equipment then that can be applied in the healthcare industry, such as MRI scans and things like that. So you bring the very best of technology to the space sector when you are trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist on Earth, but is a very viable problem in space. And the sustainability message is only starting to emerge. It's something that's very important to me because of the experiences that I've had in my own personal quest to get to space. I'm not so sure that the space sector are necessarily focusing on that themselves, but I see an instant connection between the two because I'm kind of standing back and seeing these technologies emerge. But the thing about space is that they're ultimately trying to aim for what's known as a closed loop system. And a closed loop system means that every single part of a system recycles back into that system. So on Earth, we would be considered a closed loop system because you have things like the water cycle. So it rains, rains lands on the ground, um, condensation makes it rise up into the clouds. Some of it goes into ponds and lakes. And as that condensed air rises up into clouds, it rains again. So you have a set amount of water that gets reused again and again and again. That's a closed loop system. And when you apply that to the way we live on Earth in terms of homes, but also businesses, we're quite wasteful. We don't use closed loop systems. We get in water, we get in power, we get in food, we dump waste. We don't think about tying up all those loose ends. So the closed loop system attitude of space is something that I can immediately see having benefits in the sustainability objectives that we have to address now on Earth. We're closing the loop by doing a certain amount of recycling. Even though we've come a long way, we're still tinkering around the edges compared to the water cycle or, or actual space travel. Yeah, yeah. Nature is telling us that closed loop systems are the way to do it. 
as humans, I think we have this ridiculous attitude that somehow we're in charge of the planet, but we're not. So nature is always going to bring equilibrium and balance. So if we don't work in balance, there's always consequences. So now we have a massive waste issue and we have a massive emissions issue. So we have to be smart in our business practices to figure out how can we reuse that? How can we extract anything more from those emissions? Or how can we find smarter and cleaner solutions to providing energy or to manufacturing or to travel or whatever? Is that the way the work that's done in space is going to translate into work done by companies over the next, say, 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's just about people like myself that are kind of bridging a few worlds. So when you're somebody that has a background in engineering and science and performance, so you have a deep sense of humanity whenever you look at something scientific or something from the STEM background. So you see connections differently. Whereas if you're completely focused in one thing, oftentimes you can't see those connections. So the sustainability message is starting to emerge from the space sector and they're starting to understand that all this great technology that has been uh, created to solve problems of trying to keep humans alive in extreme environments can actually then be adapted to the workplace and also to our living spaces as well. And it's just about making those connections and delivering those ideas back down. I see it already in some companies. So Amazon, I spoke with some of the senior members of Amazon and they're very clever in what they do. So they use their rainwater on their buildings and they have an expansive buildings to use for their water flush. So their cistern systems. So not the drinkable water, but for all of the systems that provide water to their toilets and to their sinks. So simple things like that are getting closer to a closed loop system and using your prime real estate of your company to put solar panels. There are now specialized kind of solar panels that are windows as well. And just thinking about smarter solutions to be more efficient, just because the cost benefit doesn't require you to do it. We should start thinking about profitability in terms of our impact on the planet. So if we're a profitable company, it means that we've considered more useful ways of taking advantage of our buildings and of all the things that are free to us to reintegrate into our companies and increase our profitability as a sustainable company as much as our profitability from a financial perspective. Yes. And then the business solutions, technology yeah. solutions associated with that will be involved in managing and, and tracking that, yeah. and giving customers an experience so that it all hangs together. Yeah, exactly. You start the year with a zero sum total and what you're trying to do at the end of the year is come back to zero. So the company decides, okay, how are we going to spend our carbon footprint or how are we going to spend our energy units or our waste units? So if we have these huge emissions just as a consequence of manufacturing, then we have to do this much to our community or this much in terms of hiring like a fleet of electric cars or whatever, so that you may be a company where there's nothing you can do about one aspect of your print on the planet. You can compensate by investing in other ways that can bring that emission number back to zero by the end of the year. The planet every year has a number that it has to meet and in terms of its emissions and its ability to be self-sustaining. And at the moment, we're finishing with a deficit every year now. So I think if we got to the end of our year's allowance by August, our allowance should get to December. And I think in the same way, companies should start thinking of themselves like that. We have a number that we have to hit. And if we go above that, then we have to make serious changes to the way we operate in the same way we do for financial profitability. 
Yes, and that leads me on to the next point I was thinking of, which was to do with the fact that in the past, if you were an investor, you would invest in, in say, in quotes, an ethical company or an ethical yeah. fund. And what you're saying, I guess, is that really that's going to have to be built into everything that happens across the face of the earth in the yeah. future, rather than it being just something that's off the side ethical thing. Yeah, and I think it's something that's added on. And I think marketability is sometimes the rationale behind it, as opposed to a core value of a company. So it has to even go beyond that. It has to become almost like part of the fabric of how companies are valued. So you have stock markets on the financial side. We also have to have some sort of market like that for a company to be seen to be acceptable in terms of its work practices. So we have acceptable work practices in terms of ethics and in terms of sustainable development goals, like proper behavior in terms of our workforce. But in the same way, we should have that kind of mindset towards our sustainability measures. So it's a cultural thing that has to happen. But I think once it happens, people will begin to understand that there is a value in that. Then the trading between companies who are sustainable and responsible in the way that they have their work practices and who they do business with then they become almost leaders in their own field. So it's about valuing ourselves differently, I think. Yes, and that leads me on to ask you my next thought. If, as I'm sure you do, talk to leaders who are looking to understand how their organization's strategy is set in the context of everything that we're talking about, what would your advice to them be? What I always say to them when I start is that I went on a simulated Mars mission in the Utah desert about three years ago. I didn't really know what I was getting myself in for, but I knew that it would be something that would help me understand how I am going to survive in extreme conditions and what kind of a crewmate I am. A simulated Mars mission is assembled in such a way that you live as if you're on Mars for a sustained period of time and you conduct science when you're there. So every time you go outside, you suit up. But not only that, you have to live with a ration of water and a ration of food and a ration of energy. And you have to monitor every single litre that you use and every single watt that you use and your food as well. And so suddenly something that you take for granted has a different value. So every time somebody flushed the toilet, you just became obsessed with your numbers. You became obsessed with how much water you've left and similarly with your food and your energy. And when I came out of that mission, and I remember the first time I went to a cafe and I sat down and had a cup of coffee and then I went to the bathroom, I had been used to only flushing the toilet for number twos, not number ones. And I went to flush the toilet and I was shocked by the litres of water that came out to flush just half a litre of urine. And it was a real light bulb moment for me. We are just wasting something because we think we have it in abundance. And then I went and washed my hands and similarly gushing water had come out when I'd been just used to like a a sort of a kind of a flow of, of drops of water. And I was perfectly capable of cleaning and washing dishes with that kind of pressure. So when you have those moments They're light bulb moments. And so what I say to leaders is that maybe put yourself in a situation that you can step away from the things that you value and you appreciate as part of your everyday. And by changing that mindset, everything becomes really, really obvious to you about how you can change your work practices. So similarly with waste, if you look at the waste and actually accumulate it in one place over a sustained period of time. That'll give you a really clear idea of what that waste is, rather than it being something transient that's taken away on a regular basis. Like really look and monitor about what are you actually doing on the ground to have a more sustainable business. 
and even think about your suppliers. Do they have sustainable business practice? Printing, paper, where your energy is coming from. Is it clean energy? Find out where it's coming from. If you have a fleet of cars, invest in a fleet of electric cars, invest in car parks with powering systems for those electric cars. Make it easy for people to adjust instead of being difficult. That's what I would say. Whilst you might not be able to do exactly what you did in terms of going on that Mars simulation, you could still almost go through the thought process of putting yourself in that situation as an exercise. The uh, what to do becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. Something that I would recommend they do is if they do really want to see their company differently, it actually spend a few days going through an exercise like that, just getting people to monitor their water usage or monitor their waste or something so that people actually start to kind of realize when you take them away, people start to really understand how much they're contributing and how much they're taking. And it's really simple. I would put everybody in a Mars analog facility for three or four days. Within two days, you completely transform your understanding of your personal usage of water and power and food when everything is just stripped back to something very basic. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And then all problems in the world would go away, as it were. Yeah. The thing about space, and this is another reason why I want to go, is that astronauts will all talk about this experience called the overview effect, that every astronaut, no, no matter what their faith or spirituality, will talk about that when you see the Earth in its entirety, you start to see that everything is connected. And you start to see that a fire, say, you know, you had the fires in California at the moment. So fires mm. in California, they emit this smoke. And that smoke travels across the Pacific and impacts uh, Russia, or it'll travel across the whole coast of America and maybe end up in Europe. And so winds and storms are all consequences of the behavior of other parts of the world. So if one country has huge emissions, their country just doesn't uh, get impacted by that. It's countries that are beside them and around them that everything is connected. So if we don't take personal responsibility and understand that everything is connected, then it will not have a lasting impact. So taking personal responsibility and then creating that culture of personal responsibility is what changes. And when you see the earth in its entirety, you don't see countries, you don't see boundaries, you see this organism that's a lie that has clouds flying across, that you can see tides, you can see rivers, you can see countries. At nighttime, you can see all these lights and light pollution happening. And it becomes obvious that we are trying to force our way of living on top of something that is telling you yes. that you're not actually listening to me. And so without thinking about the end result, you can't design the beginning very well. And that's what um, the overview effect shows us. And have you been able to work with any organizations whilst you and the people you're working with have not been into space, you were able to simulate that mindset with some outcomes that change the direction of an organization or a group of people? Yes, I have. It's very hard to get people to, to start <laughs> this conversation. I, I yes. think that's why my mission to space is really important, um, Duncan, yeah, yeah. because sometimes you have to show to lead the way. Now, everybody that listens to my talk about my Mars mission, everybody gets it afterwards. So I've given that talk many times to companies and they're very interested. They'll come back to me and they'll say that it really helped them understand the bigger picture of their sustainability contributions, not directly like with a beginning, middle and an end. And that's why for someone like me to go to space and to have a collective of tens of millions of people 
connecting with me beforehand so that they experience this overview effect with me. It's when I go down back to earth is when I can really affect lasting change and start to really get companies to see this impact and not just companies, but also uh, governments, particularly and communities for this to become an embedded way of living and not just a choice and not something that's just available to the wealthy few that every home is built sustainably. Every road is built sustainably. Every streetlight is built thinking about that interconnectedness. Yes. And it's not just something that has to be campaigned for on an ongoing basis. It becomes actually part of what we're really doing here. And at BML Digital, we've very much believed that any kind of digital transformation uh, within an organization is all about people. We talked before about how space missions, there is a level of alignment with people that happens. So I'm always very interested in that and how leaders and teams autonomously can get the best out of each other and for the organization as a whole. Space is a great example of that and recruiting teams of people for missions requires more psychological testing than actual physical testing. So it's a given that people have the smarts. It's a given that people have the bodies that they're suitable for space, but not necessarily the right attitude. So they spend a lot of time casting crews based on their own value system and how they get on. And time and time again, the most important part of being selected for an astronaut is that you're easy to get on with and that you can lead as well as follow. And then on top of that, when you're in a team is to always put the needs of your crew before you and then to be able to make strong decisions when needed. Sometimes they found in the past that people who have been recruited to space would have that military mindset where they just say yes to all orders. That's not necessarily what an astronaut is. An astronaut knows when to pull the plug for the safety of their crew. So sometimes they'll override orders because they know it's in the best of their crew. I think to create a trusting environment is very important in teams and to have that open mindset and that yes and attitude, which is something that comes from me as a performer using improvisation to innovate at all and to collaborate. You have to say yes to every single idea and then naturally together the team builds up trust and then trust then allows people to have more honest conversations and to say it's obvious that this is the best idea and then everybody works together towards that. And having an open mindset also encourages people to be curious and to be passionate and not to be afraid to step forward and to have an idea that seems completely left field. The other thing about space is you meet lots of different people and you meet people who are from the futures society and futurists will always tell you that any idea that initially seems preposterous is always worth pursuing. So any ideas that are left field at all should be nurtured and pursued But in order to create that, you have to create a trusting environment and a creative environment and a collaborative environment. So that requires people putting the needs of others ahead. It requires that open mindset and that yes and mindset and that ability to lead and also to follow. So to know that when somebody is speaking on a topic that they're expert in, to stop and listen and let them take over and then corral the team back together again. So that's what I've really learned from working in teams in space. And it has held me in really good stead going forward because I bring that attitude and that mentality then to teams that I get to work with outside of the space sector. And it's incredible when you set that contract up from the start and you kind of explain that this is what we're going to do. Once you explain that it's okay to fail in this space, it's okay to just embrace everything and to put any nonsensical idea on the table People immediately get really giddy. They get very playful. 
um, they get yeah. they immediately want to take care of each other and it's a much more generous room and of course it's going to be more fun and curiosity and passion is at the core of it it's very rewarding Yes, we could probably do a whole conversation on mm. the, the yes and. To get to yes and, first of all, you have to stop using the word but. If you try to never use that word, yeah. it does change your mindset quite significantly. Yes, what's fantastic yeah. about improv is that you see it immediately because you're trying to set up a scene and you go up, you go in and you're miming as if you're in the bathroom and your partner might go, you know, nice to see you brushing your teeth there. So the, the other partner, it's his job to build on what he just heard and kind of build that fantasy that he's just mentioned the toothbrush. And if somebody then says, but uh, you're assuming I'm in a bathroom and the audience laugh, uh, you've nowhere to go in that scene. But if you say, yes, and uh, I'm using this new toothpaste or whatever, you naturally start (laughs) to build something together and it's a safe environment and it's a trusting environment, but makes people scared and it makes them feel judged and it makes them uh, feel silly. And that's not a trusting and certainly not a creative room. So I did put a talk out recently on, we used to call it norming, where you go through a series of exercises and you take a whole day. The idea is you arrive at the end of the day. You could have been a group of people just thrown together, uh, starting work on a Monday. And by the end of the day, you want to be in a performing state. Yeah. And a lot of it was around these little things of just building trust with each other and yeah. agreeing yeah. everything that we we're going to do. And if you really take that time, yeah. Just the next day, which is only day two, you're already motoring. Often, it's never quite like that. You join a situation and you, you're inheriting something that went before. Other people join, other people leaving, and you never quite take that time yeah. out. Yeah. I'm always looking at opportunities to sort of sow that in there, but it takes quite a long time and it takes a lot of awareness in the first place that that is even something that's uh, desirable. Yes, you cannot achieve anything without failing. And actually, space is a massive embracer of failure. They understand that in order to push boundaries and to go beyond what even has been conceived, you have to have that failure mindset. If you don't understand that failure is part of um, a scale towards succeeding or towards an outcome, you won't even start. You have to keep moving forward one step at a time all the time. And I do think that the education system and, as you say, society, failure is a bad word, but failure is inherent to innovation. And so we really do have to change that relationship and possibly right back to from a very young age where you're encouraged, just try, just try. And uh, nothing worth mastering can be done first time. Any genius, any master will tell you that they put in hours and hours and hours of time of failing and getting it wrong. But every time they got it wrong, they understood something better. Yes, I enjoyed watching your TEDx talk, which is on this very subject. In the world of software development, we have this term in agile software development called fail fast. Mm. All of that is to try to make sure we don't waste money. We don't go down a path building something that's not needed. Mm. It's sort of useful. And and it also means that we sort of trust each other. I really think there's an opportunity to go to that next level, which you've touched on there, rather than sort of people worrying about success and failure. You think yourself as being on the line. And then if you're off the line, you're not doing anything. If you, as long as you're on the line, then you're moving up and down and suddenly life can appear quite different. Yes. When I figured that out for myself, it gave me the courage to embrace the fact that I wanted to go to space. It isn't something that just naturally rolls off the tongue. How do you make that happen when you start with nothing? And what I'd realized was, was this was something that I'd wanted to do for years and years and years, but I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of what people would say if I tried. 
And through improv, I started seeing my relationship with success and failure very differently. I'd come from an academic background where success was honours. It got rewarded for exam results. Failure was a dirty word. It doesn't get published in your scientific data anywhere. It's just removed. So you only ever share the successes. You never share the failures. So I had to undo that completely in order to be a good writer and creative and improviser. And so when my moment of clarity happened and I realized that I really wanted to do my own life experiment and see what happens uh, when you challenge yourself to want to do something impossible. Can you make it possible by just moving forward one step at a time? So I looked up the term failure in the Oxford Dictionary. It was defined as the absence of success. And I was like, that's really interesting. So it cannot exist without the word success at the other side of it. And it made me realize that failure is just an attitude. It's not anything tangible. It's something that we bestow on ourselves and it's an opinion that we put on something. And what I'd realized was that I had not even tried to be a part of space because I was afraid of failing. And that's the biggest mistake that you can do by not trying. When I looked at this definition of failure and success, I realized that if you're trying at all, you are succeeding. So I started seeing failure and success as an end of a scale. So as long as you move forward every day and embracing what it is you're trying to achieve in some way, you are moving forward. And every day you're getting closer and closer and closer to the end goal. And so even by doing that after six months, it's like what you said, you look back and you go, oh my gosh, look how far I've progressed. The only way you can fail is by not trying. That's the only way you can fail, by standing still and by just moving forward and trying things. You're always understanding and something is getting clearer and clearer to you. So that was, um, yeah, that was what I was saying in my TEDx talk. Yeah, and would that be the one thing you would encourage anyone listening to the talk to take away from today? Yes, I think that it's really simple. What happens is is that something that seems insurmountable, it doesn't feel so difficult because if you knew how to get there, it wouldn't be difficult. So what do you know? You know what skills you have and you know what you're trying to achieve. So just keep biting away at it. And you may not have the grand plan, but by stepping forward, the plan is slowly getting clearer to you and how you're going to do it is slowly emerging. So we don't know how we're going to get to success at any stage. If it's that simple, then it's probably not worth doing. But really, true success comes from being brave enough to commit to it 100% and be vulnerable enough to walk forward and saying, I am going to do this. And this is what I'm going to do about it today. And what I learned from that is this. And I got to speak to this person and they helped me get here. Like what I said earlier, passion and curiosity are very attractive qualities in people. And if you commit to it, people will find you and they will actually help you on that journey. That's a great note to end on. Thanks very much for joining us today, Neva. Really appreciate the conversation. There's your website, uh, neveshaw.ie. And is there other ways that people listening to the podcast can reach out to you? Yes, I wrote a book, Dream Big, which is uh, printed by a big publisher here in Ireland called Mercier Press. It's available online and Amazon. And uh, if you're in Ireland, all Irish bookshops. I'm an avid Twitterer, so you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and YouTube. And then my podcast as well, uh, Humans of Space. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, Neve. Thank you, Duncan. This podcast series is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studios, Oxford, UK.